We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this week. We're going to be in verses 15 through 29. Uh, right up front, I might as well tell you, this is a, a crazy passage. It is strange. It's weird. Uh, in fact, when I sat down last Monday and I began really to outline this and look at it, it kind of felt a little bit like Alice in Wonderland, just trying to make sense out of it all <clears throat> and thinking how in the world um, do we work our way through this. And uh, you know, really, if I'm honest, I, I regretted not having Pastor John preach this week instead of last week, so I could sit back and just see what he did. Um, and, and in fact, Travis read it this week, and, and his response to me was, you know, the best thing about expository preaching is we can't skip this. And I thought, yeah, best thing. Uh, that's right. Uh, so anyway, it is a strange passage, but it is the Word of God. Uh, and there is a reason that God has placed this into the pages of our Bible. Uh, and, and as we begin to look at this, you're going to see this overall theme here is that the author is seeking answers uh, and, and wisdom, and, and he's going to tell us this. You know, eight times in this, in fact, he says uh, what he has found and what he has not found. And so there are some things he finds answers to and some things he does not find answers to. Uh, in a sense, Solomon is telling us uh, that this is really, this is what he's been able to make sense of. Uh, at life and the world as he begins to look at it. It's going to make a little more sense and maybe a little less sense as we begin to get into this. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. Let's read. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourselves have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, this is indeed a difficult passage. Please enlighten our minds to understand it, to understand why you have given this word to your church. Please cause us to see more fully our need of Jesus Christ in this crazy world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the world is a paradox. You see, paradox is one of those words that we, we kind of know. Most of us can use it in a sentence. 
Uh, but today you need to actually know what it means because what Solomon's pointing out here is that the world that we live in is indeed a paradox. And this word paradox, and this is the definition, or dictionary definition, is a statement or proposition that despite sound reasoning from acceptable premises leads to the conclusion that seems senseless, logically unacceptable, or self-contradictory. See, no one ever asked, why did the guy on crack die in the car wreck? They never asked that because that makes perfect sense. What they ask is, why did the 17-year-old girl on her way to volunteer for big brothers and sisters get hit by the guy on crack and die? See, we ask that question because it doesn't make sense. And that's the question Solomon is asking here in the first verse we're looking at. In verse 15, let me read it again. He says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. We see this today in our life more than Solomon ever did. See, 24-hour news cycles mean that we get to see the worst things happening on the entire planet on a daily basis over and over and over again. We see children in the rubble of war fought by men, wars fought by men. We see cancer take young mothers who care for their children while mothers who abandon their children for men, for drugs, for whatever, live long lives. We see men like Hugh Hefner, 88 years old and wealthy, healthy, living in luxury which was secured by exploiting women. And all the while we hear stories like Jim Elliot who at the age of 29 while out trying to bring the gospel to people who desperately needed it loses his life. And this list could go on and on and on. Um, and really with each new addition to this list we, we realize something is not right. It goes against all of our understanding of, of justice, and it leads us to ask this question, how can God be good if he allows this? So the world we live in is a paradox. And when we human beings uh, observe this, when we see that this world is a paradox, we often respond in one of two ways. We, we either try harder to be super righteous, thinking that if we can succeed at that, if we can really be super righteous, then God will reward us with a good life, as though somehow God owes it to us, a sort of karma mentality. And the other way that we tend to respond uh, of this paradoxical world is, is by becoming so frustrated at God that the world is like this, that we declare some sort of judgment on God. And, and then we end up walking away from the Christian life altogether, saying, what's the benefit of it? Why bother at all? And this, this response often leads men and women turning to the pleasures of sin, seeking comfort of some sort, or coping mechanisms of some sort. And, and those two responses, uh, being super righteous to earn a good life, or, or being super wicked, because what does it matter anyway, are what verses 16 and 17 are warning against. Look again, listen, I'll read it again, this, this really odd-sounding piece of wisdom. He writes, not, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? This is one of those scriptures that makes you just, What? Don't, don't be overly righteous. So if I see someone walking, one of you walking down the street, and I see, oh, you've dropped your wallet. 
I mean, is this the moment when I think, well, I could give it back, but I don't want to be too righteous and put it in my pocket. That's, that's not what he means. And I, and I want you to see this. We're going to have to look a little closer at this. First, notice these connections. Overly righteous and wise go together. Overly wicked, that's literally very wicked, and fool go together. And both the overly righteous and the overly wicked lead to self-destruction. And see, the key here to understanding this is that term overly, right? Very, overly. Um, when we're obsessed with being righteous, we tend to become blind to our own sin. And we become unaware, when we become unaware of our own sinfulness, we, we stop looking to Jesus Christ for our salvation. And, and that is a bad place for anyone to be. Uh, consider Luke 18, 11 through 13. Uh, this is the Pharisee. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's this idea that if we are righteous enough, then certainly God will keep anything terrible from happening to me or to my family. And our text is telling us it doesn't work that way. Life does not work that way. You can't manipulate God. See, God alone determines the days of our lives. I know, we don't tend to like that, but that's, that's what we see in the Word of God to be true. Which, and, and when this happens, there's this, this temptation where, where wickedness sneaks in. If, if living righteousness won't earn me anything, then why even bother? Why not become wicked? Why not take from life what I want from life? And, and so he's warning the, the reader on the other side to not be too wicked. And again, this sounds strange. Um... This warning to not be too wicked, as if there's some amount that's like healthy and good for you, right? Um, and it doesn't mean that we should be a little bit uh, wicked. It means that don't intentionally choose to be wicked. Because while all are sinful, there is a big distinction between uh, being sinful and, and embracing this wickedness as a way of life. Um, some of the obvious examples, drug lords, thieves. Crooked politicians, pimps, pornographers, habitual liars, uh, dishonest business leaders, mobsters. You see, people who embrace wickedness as a means to personal gain in their life. See, while everyone is, is born sinful, no one's born a pimp. They get there by slowly embracing wickedness as a tool for selfish gain. And you can substitute that word with anything. Um, and this is where it's really tough on us, I think. If we're honest, really honest about ourselves and know ourselves, uh, any of us apart from Christ could be in that very position, that very situation. So his point here is, is don't collapse under this, this weight of trying to be over-righteous, so, over uh, so that you're trying to earn something from God. And at the same time, don't be willing to live this wicked life uh, seeking out you know, power or, or something uh, it's going to catch up with you if that's the life you live. And, and his third piece of advice, advice here is in verse 18. It reads, It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Um, this is a good message for us. A, a good message for those who are redeemed by the gospel. Stop focusing on being perfect. 
Do you hear this? Climb out from under that weight. Release it. Stop carrying that burden. And also drop the, the willingness to be wicked for personal gain. Because rather, our, our text says this, take hold of this. And he's talking about the fear of God. Take hold of that. Uh, that line, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them, means those who fear God will live in obedience to God, not for what it gains them, but because God is God. And he's to be wonderfully feared because he is God. Verse 19 then speaks of the value of wisdom. It reads, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Uh, cities were a big deal at this point. We don't tend to think of cities as powerful. Uh, for us, it's better to understand them as, as nations. We might say, um, Wisdom gives more strength than the power of ten nations. Uh, verse 20 then, we're very familiar with. It says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Uh, you're familiar with this, Romans 3.10. Uh, where Paul writes, none is righteous, no, not one. And Solomon then provides this, this example of our universal, universal sinfulness. He says in verses 21 and 22, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed all, others. Uh, we're easily hurt and offended. Uh, that's general human nature. <laughs> Uh, if you've ever heard someone talking about you behind your back, you walk in that room and there they are talking about you, uh, you likely have hurt feelings. You become angry. You can't believe they've done that. Uh, and, and yet here he is telling us, you know, don't, don't be too upset about that. Why in the world is he saying not to be upset about that? And his reason here is, well, because you've done the same thing. Uh, most of you can probably trace back these things that you see someone else do to you. And you realize, no, that's me. I did the same thing to them. His point is, you know, we're quick to see their sin. We are not so quick to see our own sin. Uh, and, and he's trying to get us to understand every, every one of us is sinful. In verses 23 and 24, God's word poetically is telling us that there are limits to our wisdom. It reads, all this I have tested by wisdom. I have said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? Uh, far from me. This is uh, our limited understanding. It's like when you think about what we know about outer space. It's far. We know some things, but there is so much that is still left unknown about that. Uh, very deep. It's like the depths of the ocean. I think it's amazing that we've been on this planet for so long, and, and yet we know very little about the bottom of the ocean and what's going on with those crazy animals down there. Uh, it, it's like the paradoxes of life. God doesn't tell us why he does the things he does. It's, it's far off. It's outside of our understanding. And, and that's okay because he's God and, and you're not. Isaiah 55.9, God is speaking here and he says this. He says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Puts a little perspective on it. In verse 25, we see that he still wants to understand the world. Who doesn't? We still pursue an understanding of the world. He writes, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness, the scheme of things. He's, he's been searching for answers to make sense out of the world we live in. And the rest of this passage then is, <clears throat> is what he's learned from that. And what he's failed to learn in that. 
And the first thing he says in verse 26, And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. It's not just an observation he's making. It's not just some unfortunate thing he noticed, but, but he's saying that he has found this to be more bitter than death. That's pretty bad. Um, so you might be offended by that statement. Uh, so let's just acknowledge right off the bat, it's not a general statement about women. Uh, just a certain type of woman, and I know that still leaves a little bit of offense there. Uh, it's a certain type of woman with a certain type of corrupted heart. One who is said to be like a hunter, whose heart is said to be snares and a net. That's a word pictures for you to begin to understand. His, her, her, whose hands are like fetters. It's like handcuffs. A woman who wants the attention of men or who is so desperate to have a man. Not just a woman who commits sexual sin, but one who actively, intentionally uses her beauty, her body, her words to trap him, to capture him. And at the same time, this is a personification of foolishness similar to Lady Folly in Proverbs, uh, particularly Proverbs 7 through 9. Is, uh, it's laid out explicitly. Uh, Proverbs 7, 21 and 23 gives a little picture of this. It says, With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And then later in Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 30, Lady Folly is again presented as an, as an adulteress uh, who does not believe that she's done anything wrong. There is no shame. I want you to notice also that it's a certain type of man who she can capture who can be taken by her, as our text says. And uh, a sinner, or as Proverbs speaks of him, a fool. Uh, Zach Eswine, um, commenting on this, makes an important point. He says, she consumes rather than loves. See, the same is true for this man. He's not interested in the proper use of physical intimacy, that, that which is a blessing in a marriage relationship. Rather, he is captured because he consumes her rather than show her the love he's been called to show. Recent generations, my own included, have sorely misunderstood this. They have misunderstood that mutual consumption is not the same as reciprocal love. Vastly different things. Uh, to put this in dating terms, women, you won't find a godly guy you wish to marry if you pursue him like a sexual predator. You just won't. What you're going to capture is an absolute fool. And men, if this foolishness captures you, it's because you're a fool. You love sin more than you do God. So keep in mind here that Lady Folly um, seduces him away from God. King Solomon understands this because that's his actual experience. You, you know, you kind of got to remember the whole story of King Solomon. In 1 Kings 11, 1 through 2, we read this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And as Pastor John said last week, the fool is the one who knows the word of God and chooses to reject it. And the opposite of the fool, the, the wise, uh, the wise knows the word of God and receives it. 
Whether God's word has been received or rejected is, is seen in our actual lives. Do, do we live as foolish simpletons who are captured by the attractiveness of wickedness? Or, or do we live as wise people who joyfully receive the word of God as the word of God? Unless you misunderstand me, let me be very clear here. This does not imply some sort of perfection. So much as efforts and desires for obedience and true repentance when we fail. And what we see clearly in the New Testament is that receiving the word of God is an evidence that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us and is at work in us. I, I do want to help you understand uh, this portion of our text in regards to living in 2015 as well. I think it would be uh, poor not to at least mention this. I, I won't go into too much detail here, but guys and, and women too, in this time we live, this era that we live in, uh, with the internet and other such things, you don't even need to know Lady Folly to be captured by her. So let this be a warning to us that the, the snare and the trap of pornography is more bitter than death. Do not be captured. And if you are already captured, seek out gospel help to be set free. Last thing I want to mention on this portion of our text is this. You, you may have found yourself on either side of this sin. Uh, this consuming of others rather than loving others. And the good news of the gospel is this, that it's, it's not only that, that God brings us to repentance. It's not only that he brings us uh, forgiveness of our sin, but also that our lives are never ruined. Our lives may be more difficult, more painful. We may still taste the bitterness of sin, but our lives are not ruined, and the gospel is restorative. If your history or even your present looks like our text speaks about here, no longer be weighed down by your sin. No longer be weighed down by sin you've repented of. See, the Lord Jesus Christ has paid for it. Now in verses 27 and 28, he continues, and, and let me warn you, if this does not sound chauvinistic to you, there's a good chance it's because you're a chauvinist. This is kind of a, a litmus test for you. Verse 27 says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. Well, adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly. But I have not found one man among a thousand I have found. But a woman among these I have not found. Okay, what you likely heard me say or read was there are very few good men and there are no good women. Is that what you heard? That's what I heard when I first read it. Um, so let's slow down and consider what he actually says. First, he confesses that in his search to make sense out of the world, he's not been able to do so. Um, he understands the limits of his own wisdom. He can't explain why the world is a paradox, and, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit later. But then he goes, he tells us about his search for an upright man and an upright woman. Uh, that's to say a virtuous man or a virtuous woman. And, and we know that this is a search for a virtuous man or woman because in verse 29 he's, he's contrasting uh, the upright with those who are schemers. Uh, and his conclusion is that in a thousand men he's been able to find one who's upright. And then he says, of a thousand women, he's been able to find zero who are upright. So women, before you get too upset, keep in mind, if these were percentages, men are a tenth of a single percent, barely above, above zero. Uh, so the, it might seem to be knocking women at first sight. Uh, to be fair, it's knocking men pretty bad as well. No one comes out of this well. Uh, more importantly, though, you've got to consider who's writing this, King Solomon. Um, it's it's not this wide-reaching generalization about genders. 
but it's an actual life observation of this man, King Solomon. And if you remember a minute ago, I was reading to you in 1 Kings, verses 1 and 2, and we saw that, that Solomon uh, has actually been the fool that he speaks about by marrying these women who were outside of the faith. Well, um, here's what the two next verses right after that say. 1 Kings 11, 3 and 4. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. 700 wives, 300 concubines, which are just basically lower stand wives of a lower standing or lower status. Uh, you do that math. What's it come to? 1,000 wives. 1,000 wives who worship false gods. 1,000 wives who have helped to turn his heart away from the Lord. Is it really all that surprising that when he has his, this observation of the 1,000 women that he knows, he would say he find none who were virtuous? And so don't let what seems like a, sh a chauvinist statement distract you from the real point he's making here, that there are not many virtuous people in the world. And like I said, we'll come back to that. Uh, the last verse in our text, verse 29, is, is confirming that despite all the things he doesn't know, he's sure of this. God is not to blame for sinful people. Verse 29 says, see, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that goes over and over throughout creation. Uh, we want to blame God for the, for the evil we witness in the world, uh, for murders, for drug lords, for sex trafficking, for domestic violence, for the lack, of proper, uh, the lack of respect for proper sexuality. And Solomon's telling us, you can't do that. God cannot be blamed for wickedness in the world because he made men upright. He made women good. And then centered in the, entered the world. And we no longer are. Now, this is where what Solomon has observed collides with what God has revealed in the gospel. God is not to blame for wickedness in the world. But he has, at great cost to himself, committed to a resolution for this wickedness. A, a savior. A sacrifice. A, a victor over sin and over death. Jesus is a savior who makes sense in a world that does not make sense. Here's what I mean. From time to time as I'm, I'm interacting with someone who's, who's trying to make sense out of the world, trying to get their head around whether God could possibly exist or not, this question, which our text began with, comes up in some form. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now when that happens, I can always give them my good Calvinist answer. Really, there are no good people. And that's true. And that's what Solomon's been pointing us to in this text even. But, but really, that avoids the heart of their question. Because I, I know what they really want is, is, is an answer to the question um, of why they just learned about some sweet young girl with brain cancer. Why? Why? And in those moments, I want to give an answer. I want to give a good answer. An answer they're going to like. An answer that's going to make them think, you're right, God's awesome, I believe. And yet the only answer I can give is that sin has wreaked absolute havoc on the world we live in. That the world is just utterly messed up. And, and, and that sounds depressing. But, but this is why the gospel is so much bigger 
than just our personal belief system. When Christ died on the cross, he didn't just secure redemption of our souls. He secured redemption of the whole world. Can you imagine this? I know we've talked about this before, but can you imagine when plants and animals and weather, when that's all set right? Can you imagine humans when this is all fulfilled? No more scheming, no more selfishness, no more consuming of each other, no more cancer, no more sin, but more to the point here, or to Solomon's point, who is the wisest man who ever lived, and he's humbled with no answer for making sense of the wickedness of the world. When we learn in the gospel, uh, what we learn in the gospel, rather, is that you don't have to carry the expectations of perfection because Christ carried them for you. He is righteous, and His righteousness is counted as our righteousness, and those sound just like words, but but those are words that lift the weight of expectation off of us. And that's why in, in Romans 3.22, uh, Paul writing there, and he says, Jesus is the righteousness of God through faith for all who believe. So we don't look to our righteousness because we won't find it there. We look to Jesus by faith. And I want to close with a, a quote from Blaise Pascal a mathematician of all people. Uh, I think it's a helpful way, to apply, a helpful way to apply this text to our hearts. He says, Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness, wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. Let's pray. Lord, this text has been very difficult to make sense out of. It's not unlike the very paradoxical theme it covers. It, it shows our universal sinfulness. It, it shows the way we seek to use other people, to manipulate even you for our own causes, rather than preparing ourselves for your causes. Grant us strength in your spirit to not be overly prideful or not pridefully over-righteous, nor wicked in our decisions and actions. More than anything, Lord, make us to see that in this messed up world, we need a Savior. May we find rest in the truth that you have provided that Savior in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.